Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode three of Video Store Nightmares, the podcast where we talk about movies from the strange section of the video store, uh, the section that your parents wouldn't allow you to rent movies from. My name is Luke, and I'll be your host for the evening, and I'm joined by Leland. Hi. And unfortunately, due to a technical issue, uh, we will have to wait till next week to discuss Oinga Boinga and Forbidden Zone. Uh, instead, tonight, we're going to talk about the 1974 John Waters Trashter piece, Female Trouble. So, Leland, this was a first-time watch for you, but you've now seen a couple of John Waters' early films. What are your first impressions? I am familiar with John Waters as a director. I have seen many interviews. I've even seen stand-up from him. But somehow, I've managed to avoid watching any of his films up until just a few days ago. I first saw Desperate Living, and it was all right. Uh, I'm sure we'll talk about that one at a later date. But this film, I feel, is a very high bar to, to reach for his other films. I struggle to think of how you can create a movie with you know his normal themes and humor and stuff that that transcends this. Yeah, th this is my favorite John Waters movie, and John Waters identifies it as the best of his early movies. It, it's definitely the best vehicle for Divine and his particular talents. Um, so, yeah, I'm pretty excited to talk about this. Uh, before we get into the movie itself, let me ask you, do you think that there is any social or artistic value to a movie like this. Absolutely. And I don't know if we want to front load this podcast with all of it or if we want to kind of just hit it piecemeal as we go through. Just give me a hint. Like, why should someone who is a normal cinema goer, why should they watch this? And or why should they consider it important? Like, why is counterculture important? Uh <laughs> Like, what is the importance of counterculture? Fuck the man? I don't know. Yeah, I so I struggle with this, um, with, with answering this question in regards to John Waters movies, because they're, they're certainly countercultural insofar as they're intentionally offensive and in some ways like poorly made films. Um, and I think the, the intentionally so. But I do think that there's a social and artistic value in that. And I should, so I should start right away by saying this, that I don't think there's much new we can say about this movie that hasn't been said before. And I encourage our listeners to like, listen to John Waters talk about it. Listen to his director's commentary, read his books, watch his Q&As, this, it, I'm a huge John Waters fan, not only as a filmmaker, but as a person. And, and I think that you should really go straight to him. But with that said, I, I am excited to talk about this. And I think the role of movies like this is to shock us into questioning our own morality, to push us towards questioning why we struggle to accept certain things. Because 
as we'll discuss throughout the film, the ethics or the morals of society aren't really consistent with the way society behaves. And I think a movie like this forces us to confront that. But I also just think it's fucking hilarious. Uh, I don't know. I, I think this movie does portray how society actually acts in, uh, in certain situations. But in a way, like when I was, after I'd finished uh, this film, I felt like a high school AP student, like in a way for analyzing the meta aspects of this film. Like, is this actually the director's intent or am I just like bullshitting to fill a five paragraph essay? But I have a, an interpretation of this film that uh, it, it seems like that's what his intention was. Maybe I'm way off the mark. No, I mean, it, I, I think it's true of all art that, you know, it's an interaction between the artist and the, the viewer. Um, and so I think that whatever interpretation or meaning you bring to it is valid. With that said, when I was doing some research on this film and reading some of the views of like more academic writers, um, I don't think they're helpful. Like I read one essay about this film talking about its roots in like Hegelian dichotomies. And like, I don't think John Waters thinks about these issues in those ways. Um, not to say that he's not sophisticated, because I think he is, and not to say that he's not intellectual, because I think he is, but I don't think that's how he would want his art to be consumed. Um, I think that in some ways, by being overly academic towards a work like this, uh, we're offending the the same things that John Waters is trying to advance if that makes sense yes all right so we've rambled enough let me play the trailer um and then we're gonna get into the plot of this thing look the, the star of pink flamingos is here again it's divine she's got balls and she's got female trouble i'm a thief and a shit kicker and uh i'd like to be famous Don Davenport is eating a meatball sandwich right out in class. Here she is, divine as Don Davenport, a feisty young high school girl. My parents are going to be real sorry if I don't get them cha-cha heels. Nice girls don't wear cha-cha heels. There's no such thing. I don't wear those ugly shoes. I told you not to. Yes, she had a lot of problems. And she found herself in big female trouble. I just wanted to tell you that I'm pregnant and I want money. Baby, just because you've got them big udders don't mean you're something special. It's hard being a loving mother. I give her free food, a bed, clean underpants. What? Just seeing the Look in the mirror, Tappy. For 14, you don't look so good. Never have I encountered such a morally bankrupt group of people. Can't hide them. Can't hide them. If they're smart, they're queer. And if they're stupid, they're straight. Crime enhances one's beauty. The worse the crime gets, the more ravishing one becomes. I'm going to chop off your scrawny little paw. Watch as Divine performs the most perverse acts ever brought to the screen. I blew Richard's back. And I'm so fucking beautiful, I can't stand it 
So right at the beginning of this film, uh, we have a dedication. Um, and the dedication is to Charles Tex Watson. Uh, are you familiar with who this is? Yes. All right. So for our listeners, if you don't know, um, Watson was one of the, the Manson followers who murdered Sharon Tate, um, as well as, as several other people. Um, what do you think about the film being dedicated to him? Now, I I honestly don't know what he's going for here. I, like, does this offend hippies? I I think this offends like potentially everybody because this is like do this is like dedicate he, he dedicated his movie to a murder, but did he do it like as a joke? Is he serious about it? Yeah. So to to parse out some of what John Waters has said about this. First of all, so later he apologized for it and said that he regretted it. Um, and he regretted it because he felt like it trivialized um, both the murders and the murderer. And, but he said that at the time um, he did it to be shocking. At the same time though, he was friends with several of the Manson murderers and communicated with them in prison throughout their lives. And he said that he sees them as victims too of, of Manson. And I think that he's interested in the way that society not aggrandizes these people, um, but is following them as you would follow a celebrity which i think is part of the theme of the movie yes for sure so i mean yeah i don't i don't know what else to to say about that um except it, it's a detail at the beginning of the film that's easy to overlook and yet i think it's probably its most controversial aspect i definitely did not know that he regretted dedicating the film to that man yeah so once we get past that and we get into the credit sequence, um, we have this song uh, that's this title song that's sung by Divine, and it was written by John Waters. What do you think of this song? It matches the film's tone perfectly. I actually think Divine does a great job singing. She does a great job with everything in this film. I mean, she is the star. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, this is, I think, a really great performance performance and not in a like so bad it's good way I, I actually think this is really good acting here on the part of divine that's the thing it it's so good i don't know if it's natural or if this is like a renaissance woman who just has that perfect timing delivery and uh and expression that's perfect for almost every scene yeah i i, I totally agree so one thing that john waters um, has also pointed out is that 
it's kind of depressing for him watching this movie because so many of the actors and the the crew are dead now. Like Divine obviously died um, of a heart attack. Um, David Lockery, who plays Mr. Dasher, he died of an apparent drug overdose um, a few years after this movie was made, which is why he doesn't appear in any of John Waters' later movies. Um, so I I just think that that's interesting to point out that this movie has sort of a sad legacy insofar as so many people didn't make it out of this era. But once the film starts, we start with Divine in high school. Um, Divine was 28. Uh, when this movie was made. Um, how do you think he pulls off being a high school girl? <laughs> well, adults playing children, right? Yeah. We, although... we are now three for three on episodes about films, like depicting atrocities against like the lost and misguided youth of America. Yeah, but in this case, like Divine isn't playing this role because... Hollywood needed uh, actor that they could show nude or something, right? Like John Waters intentionally wanted Divine to play this character throughout her entire life. And in some ways, I think it's a, a joke. Um, but I was listening to the director's commentary and John Waters said that he actually thought Divine passed as a high school student. And I'm not, sh- I'm not sure I agree with that. Mm, I, I don't know man maybe the 70s were different and they didn't really regulate you know hormones and meat as much as they do now and maybe you know you could just say she hit puberty pretty early that's fair um so we find out that divine's character is named dawn davenport and Once you've seen um, a lot of John Waters movies, you'll find that his characters often have alliterative names, you know, that start with the same sound, like Dawn Davenport. Um, But she's with two friends named Chicklet and Confetta. I love these names. They're a lot better than Bunch. (laughs) True. Um, So I love this classroom scene. Uh, One of Divine's friends um, gets in trouble for her haircut and her gum, for chewing gum. And then this sort of goody two-shoes girl uh, tells on Divine, um, on Dawn. I'm going to mix those names up consistently throughout the whole thing. Uh, But this girl says this. Mr. Weinberger, Dawn Davenport is eating a meatball sandwich right out in class, and she's been passing notes. So yeah, Dawn is eating a meatball sandwich, in class and i don't know why that's like one of the funniest lines in the movie to me uh although i'm not sure why (laughs) she smuggles an entire sandwich into a class and manages to get away with taking bites of it in an environment where this dude is just like picking off students for all these issues but he misses divine eating a meatball sandwich (laughs) yeah so um so we find out uh during this school scene that divine or dawn really wants cha-cha heels for christmas and if she doesn't get them then her parents are going to be sorry uh and pretty quickly after that we switch to christmas morning 
and Dawn's parents want to sing carols under the tree. And like, this is clearly um, a parody or mockery of sort of suburban straight culture. And Dawn doesn't get the cha-cha heels. Uh, Her dad says, good girls don't wear cha-cha heels. And so she starts to fight with her parents and knocks the Christmas tree on top of her mom. This is exactly why you do not get a real Christmas tree, because you never know when your child is going to weaponize it against you. <laughs> well, what what I love is that um, the dad continues to fight with and chase Dawn and totally ignores his wife trapped under the tree. Do you think there's social commentary there? I just think it's meant to be uh, vulgar and ridiculous. I I mean as the movie was progressing I was trying to think about like you know is is this movie trying to make a comment on like society failing this person but when it comes back to this scene you see that's not really the case this the the Vine's character comes from a seemingly stable well-meaning regular suburban family and that didn't matter I was still set on this uh, this track of destruction for the next like 90 minutes. I don't think that John Waters is trying to say anything like I don't think this is an indictment of society because it failed Dawn or anything like that. Definitely not. I think I think Dawn is meant to be heroic in this film. Like, I don't think we are supposed to view her as a a villain or a a corrupted child. I think we are are meant to root for her and and see her as sort of a heroic um, antagonist to straight suburban culture. Antagonist to suburban culture is correct, but I don't think the film really portrays her as being heroic. I think it's this film is more of a traffic accident that you're not supposed to look away from all right well let's let's hold on to that thought because i want to return to it i want to return to it later um so dawn hitchhikes and she gets picked up by a man um who is also played by divine did you notice that so i didn't realize they were the same actor until the last scene with oh wow that guy all right, so yeah, they um, Divine uh, plays the man as well, um, and they stop to have sex on the side of the road. I think that it's it's somewhat unclear whether this starts as rape or starts as consensual, but it's certainly consensual by the end. I think it's consensual because she actively is stealing his wallet during the middle of it. I think this was just like a scam. Yeah, and and she uh, after after he has finished, uh, she makes him go down on her and and says like eat it, eat it, and it's I, I mean this is there is no way you could make this scene more provocative to a general audience, right? You have a man raping or having sex with himself in drag. And then going down on the post-sex vagina, right? Like, and oh, oh, and that's not even to mention like the ugly shit 
stains on the underwear. <laughs> yeah, about to say the environment's not very great either. It's just a bunch of abandoned mattresses on the side of a highway. <laughs> I so apparently Divine throughout the rest of his life loved that whenever anyone said "go fuck yourself," he could say "I already did." <laughs> Um, so, of course, Dawn gets pregnant, and we see Dawn give birth on the couch um, and then bite through the umbilical cord, and she names her daughter Taffy. Still better than Bunch? All right, that's fair. I kind of like Taffy, but I like I like names that aren't typically names. So, do you think, based on this birth and and everything that comes after do you think that this is a pro abortion film i did not consider that at any point during this film not just pro choice but pro abortion i mean it's certainly an argument for why it should be uh, allowed <laughs> at one point one of dawn's friends I, I don't know which one but says uh something like i'm glad i had an abortion Yes, I remember that line. And and uh, and John Waters has said um, something along the lines of, uh, I wish that I could be a woman just so I could have an abortion. <laughs> Which, on the one hand, like, he's clearly just being provocative um, and intentionally offensive. But on the other hand, if this movie is portraying society failing anyone, it's Taffy. And... I think there's an argument to be made that you should not like a teenage mother like Don Davenport shouldn't be bringing a child into the world that she's not prepared to care for and certainly does not develop into a good mother. <laughs> no, absolutely not. So we see Taffy as like a young girl and she's really nagging Don. did you think of this first interaction we see between mother and daughter so without giving away too much information about my personal life i used to have constant exposure into the intimate moments and workings of broken families domestic disputes child custody issues criminal activities mental illness financial struggle so on and so forth and despite female troubles presentation as an exaggerated comedy, the darker domestic situations are shockingly more real than some, maybe most, serious drama portrayals that deliberately deliberately seek that like sad, real, like gritty family nuance. And we just watched Private Parts, which was trying to be a little bit more worldly, a little bit more realistic, right? And I think that even though this is a comedy, this is still darker than that movie ever was. I can agree with that, uh, especially when Dawn starts complaining to her friends who have come to visit. And so they all drag Taffy upstairs and chain her to the bed. Yes. 
This reminds me of the scene in Desperate Living where the babysitter puts the baby in the refrigerator. <laughs> like, it just shows a callous disregard for the welfare of children. I would not want John Waters babysitting my child. Oh, I think he'd be a... Well, I think that John <laughs> Waters strikes me... He strikes me as like a truly moral person, despite the content of his films. And I think that he's probably great with children. Uh, I think he's probably has no interest in them. Um, that that's the what strikes me. But I think in real life he'd be he'd be a caring figure. Hmm. But I I've never met him. He it's it's still on my bucket list. So I may be wrong. So Dawn's friends tell her that she should get a haircut to feel better, and they take her to the salon. And this is where we meet Gator. And Gator is one of the hairdressers that Dawn's friends are raving about. And this is the only major actor in the cast who is not part of John Waters' like regular crew. And apparently, I didn't know this before, but in my research, um, apparently John Waters just met this actor walking down the road. And he thought that he was probably on his way to like score some pot and that after filming this movie, he never really saw him again, that he tracked him down once. And like, they talked on the phone, but otherwise this was like a one and done acting gig for this guy. That does not surprise me. I mean, this man shows up in the movie looking like he uh, just stepped out of a vampire, the masquerade cosplay, right? Yeah. Um, it, I don't, you know, I want to say that he's like the weakest link of the film, but I still like his performance. It still works for me. You think he's a weak link? A little bit. I mean, when you put him up alongside Divine and Edith Massey, like, how do you compete with that? I suppose you're right from that perspective. But I think he performed his role, like, as, as well as you could expect. So Edith Massey, speaking of her, who my understanding is that she owned the thrift store um, near where John Waters grew up. And some people have suspected that she wasn't really in on the joke, like that John Waters was was making fun of her in these movies. But he's been abundantly clear that that was not the case. And I think she's a blast. I love her performances in every one of his movies, and this is no exception. Uh, apparently, it took like three people to squeeze her into that dominatrix outfit that she wears throughout the film. She seems pretty self-aware to me. Are you saying that it was hinted that she was unaware of her presentation in these films? Yeah, some people have suggested that, that John Waters was sort of taking advantage of her. Mm. I didn't get that vibe, but I've only seen two films. Yeah, and I, I don't think it's true. Um, I uh, My understanding is that she is certainly in on the joke, and I appreciate her all the more for it. But she is trying to convince Gator, who is her nephew, uh, that he needs to be gay. I'd be so proud if you was a fag and had a nice beautician boyfriend. I'd never have to worry. Ain't nothing to worry about. I worry that you work in an office, have children, celebrate wedding anniversaries. The world of heterosexual is a sick and boring life. 
what do you think about all these conversations where Aunt Ida is trying to convince Gator to uh, to quote be a fag? I'd imagine that a significant portion of the crew who worked on this film has had an unfortunate amount of experience with family ostracism. And this is a fantastic scene that sort of puts the shoe on the other foot, right? Like, they have probably been on the other side of this conversation, but the obvious context that it was their family trying to convince them to be straight. This is one of my favorite scenes in the whole movie. Oh, yeah, I agree. And I've never really thought about it that way uh, from the ostracism angle. I I think this is part of what I was discussing at the beginning, that this is John Waters forcing so-called straight audiences to confront their biases, right? And saying, if it looks illogical and stupid when I show you it from this perspective, why does it not look equally as stupid when you try to convince gay people to be straight? I think that's spot on. Like, it's about pointing out not necessarily the hypocrisy, but the illogic of or irrationality of so-called straight cultures preferences and i think i it's really effective but it's also really funny i just crack up during these scenes so gator works in the salon and it's owned by the dashers um who are played by david lockery and mary vivian pierce and This is not that unlike their performance in Pink Flamingos, where they they play uh, Divine's competitors for the filthiest people alive. And I just love the the chemistry between them and the contrast they create with the rest of the film. What did you think about these characters? I absolutely hated their characters on their introduction. I didn't like the salon at all until the plot progressed and it became a more central um, until it became more central to divine's like character arc i really believe that these two this couple is supposed to be like a parody on art critics who were basically praising john waters's films as being high art yeah, I don't know if John Waters was getting a lot of praise when this movie came out, but he certainly has sense. And he jokes all the time about how how ironic it is that he is like an esteemed member of acceptable society now and that he is esteemed as an artist when you know, when he first started, he was calling himself like puke king and the the prince of trash and in monikers like that so i i definitely see that irony there um, but i'm not sure if it was intentional or not so was this more of a life imitating art then did this come first i think it might have but i also think that they're they are meant to mock polite society's distinction between or the arbitrary line that's drawn between moral and immoral. Like they have this belief that crime is beauty and they push divine into this lifestyle of of crime. I mean, 
past the extent she was already a criminal. Yet they get offended by any mention of sex. So they're all about violence, but hate any mention of sex and find it repulsive. Like, doesn't that remind you of American film censorship? Absolutely. Absolutely. Now that you mention it, I forgot about the, the one-shot line that they were completely abhorrent to, to any mention of sex acts, but it makes sense that that is a, a accurate depiction of a U.S. ratings board. Yeah, so they say that um, they only accept particularly appalling or ravishing beauties um, into their salon, which seems like a contradiction until you see the way their characters progress throughout the film. And when they're sort of interviewing candidates to be clients, uh, they ask Dawn what she does, what, what she does for a living. And she says, I'm a thief and a shit kicker, and I'd like to be famous, <laughs> which I love. And so do the Dashers because they instantly accept her as a client. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is how Dawn and Gator meet. And we see sort of a dating montage and then they're soon married. Uh, And then we get a montage of married life. And you're just going to skip over that wedding dress. Oh, why don't you tell us about it? I I don't know if it's possible to really convey just how obscene this dress is, how in your face it be. (laughs) But it's appropriate to Don's character, right? Oh, absolutely. Every outfit is so deliberate. I mean, John Waters is certainly a fan of fashion with very particular tastes. And you see them on full display uh, in all of Don's outfits throughout this movie. But you're right. The wedding dress might win the prize for the most memorable. What church do you think gave them permission to film? Actually, there's some, some story behind that, that John Waters... I'm going to get this story wrong, but I think that the manager or the the priest of the church that gave them permission was later sued by his wife in divorce proceedings, and she made a character argument against him that he had uh, accepted a large sum of money in order to allow a pornographic film to be shot in his church. And when the lawyers contacted John Waters, he insisted that A, it was not pornographic, and B, that he did not pay any money to get this permission. So I'm not sure what the full story is there, but something uh, interesting went on. Mm -hmm. So we see adult Taffy now, and she's played by Mink Stoll, who I absolutely love. Uh, She is one of my favorite John Waters regulars. And she walks in on Dawn and Gator having sex. And uh, what do you think about this sex scene? (laughs) This is the point where I pause the film and see how much runtime was left. Because it seemed like so much had happened already. And it just... (laughs) I'm like, this film has got to be running out of steam at some point. And I realized just about an hour left. Um, This, again, goes back to the first scene featuring Taffy where it's very sad, but it's prevent it's presented in such a comedic way that it's not immediately, it might not immediately be apparent if you're distracted by the props and the ridiculous characters. So Gator 
comes on to Taffy, who's supposed to be 14 in this scene, although Mink Stoll was, I think, about 26 or 27 in real life. And he asks her to suck his dick. And this is how she responds. I wouldn't suck your lousy dick if I was suffocating and there was oxygen in your balls. You pay some respect to your mother, Miss Taffy. And if I catch you spying and nosing around here one more time, I'm going to put you in the mental hospital. She can't help it. She's retarded. I am not retarded. Oh, yes, you are, Taffy. I had you tested when you were a little girl. A staff of doctors examined you. And maybe the reason you don't remember is that they told me you are most definitely retarded. I never went to any hospital. That is a rotten, filthy lie. I'm afraid it's the truth. I don't like it any better than you do. To think that my genes were polluted by your birth is not a very pleasant thought. Oh, how can I call you my mother? I wish I'd been an orphan. You can tell she's retarded. Look at her face. She has the face of an old woman. Oh, it's true. Look in the mirror, Taffy. For 14, you don't look so good. It's because you've been such a brat all your life that now all that bratishness is showing in your face. The face of a retarded brat. So uh, I, I love that whole exchange. Oh, God, just some good old casual child abuse, right? But like, th this is what I was talking about earlier, right? Like a casual, depressing screenplay would just have the stepfather doing evil stepfather things behind closed doors. But here you got the mother undeniably complicit and or indifferent towards the safety of her child. There's like a complete absence of maternal instinct. And it's not even an intimidation thing because Dawn can handle herself. She can, she can beat up Gator at any point, right? And, and then there's like this cherry on top where I don't know if it's this scene or later on, but both parents like use this child as like a cathartic punching bag and as leverage against each other in like domestic disputes. And that is just very IRL dysfunctional. And, and for me, that is more hard hitting than, than seeing like stained underwear or unusual sex kinks. So do you find this scene disturbing or do you find it comedic? It's both. I think this movie hits both and a lot of scenes. The balance is so, so well maintained throughout the entire film. And how do you think they do that? Like, how how is it possible for this scene to come off so comedically, even though the subject matter is so disturbing? Well, uh, I mean, we've talked about this in, in prior podcasts, but, you know, casting the children, uh, the child characters as adults is part of it. But it's also just the absolute ridiculousness of, the dialogue and the scenery the props the costuming and the tone like divine's tone if if you could if you changed her like, like jovial tone into something like more darker and you just made the language like more brief and less fluffy it, it, this would come off as like a, a really messed up scene yeah, this is one of my favorite things about John Waters' films is I can't pinpoint how exactly he pulls off this balance, but he does, and I find it hysterical. I mean, I think I'm I'm just kind of on his, his humor wavelength. So I found this quote from him that I thought was really interesting. He said that Pink Flamingos was a hard act to follow. 
because of its offensiveness. And he says, all my humor is based on nervous reactions to anxiety-provoking situations. So I wanted the ideals rather than the action of female trouble to be horrifying. So I think that's an interesting way to look at it, that there, there's nothing as grotesque happening on screen as some of the things that happen in other John Waters movies, but the ideals or the values of these characters are so lacking that that serves as the source of discomfort. And that discomfort is so extreme that it gives way to humor. I, I think it's intentional. I think he, he just well-crafted each of these scenes. Maybe it was like a, a coincidental accident that it turned out this well. But between his direction and Divine's performance, every single scene like this in this film is hit uh, with a perfect note. Yeah, and, and it really does, as I said earlier, a lot rides on Divine's performance and the, as you said, the tone that this character adopts throughout the film. And I don't know if it would work with another actress or actor. It's just really successful and, and really funny. Uh, Gator and Dawn have a fight and Dawn decides that she wants a divorce. Uh, so she goes to the salon to get her mind off things and Gator's not there. And before we get any dialogue from Dawn, we get a few different conversations going on among patrons. How's your little girl? Why don't you bring her in more often? Why, so you can undress her again with your eyes? Christ's sake, she's only six years old. I know. <laughs> but I just like to play with her. I wish I was a little girl. Well, throw a goddamn penny in the fountain and make a goddamn wish and maybe it'll come true. What What do you think of this, of this exchange? I actually had pushed that out. I forgot that was a scene in the film. I think that's probably the... That's it's, it's probably the most unnecessary part of the film, I think. I don't think that really needed to be in there. I don't know. I mean, I don't know if it serves a point, but I found it really funny. And I do think it's interesting that the... So the mom that's accusing this hairdresser of undressing her six-year-old child with his eyes is implying that there's some perversity or some sexual... Uh, intent but apparently that's not the case he just wants to be a little girl himself that's a i don't know that's it's funny to me but it's also um sort of profound uh in that like the nature of desire i think is difficult to parse out sometimes to what extent you want something versus you want to be something maybe i misunderstood this scene because i totally just understood it as this guy being like uh like alpha creep and this guy creeping on the daughter and this mom is so concerned about getting the perfect haircut that she's willing to just completely ignore that oh i think that's totally fair and regardless of what his motivation is his actions are certainly perverse I mean, as all the characters in this film are perverse, but I do think it's an interesting conversation that actually in past viewings, I've never really paid attention to the scene, but it just leapt out at me this time that he doesn't want to like molest this little girl. 
he wants to be a little girl and play with her as little girls. That's, I don't know, that's really interesting to me that this is something that's included in sort of a throwaway scene. So Dawn shows up and she tells us that she wants a divorce and Mr. Dasher wants to see her privately because the Dashers want her to become a model for them in what they call a beauty experiment. And this is where they have the conversation about sex because she's she's afraid that it's pornographic. And they say, no, we view sex as a violation of the spirit and would never allow ourselves to be caught in one of those ludicrous positions. What did you think of this exchange? It was a little uh, off-putting at first because I didn't know what the angle was at the time. But it soon becomes clear, as we've already discussed, that, yeah, they might be sex-averse, but they are violence-obsessed. Yeah. So, I mean, the next thing they say is that they believe crime is beauty and that the more violent the crime, the more beautiful. And so they want to take pictures of Dawn committing crimes. And she agrees on the condition that they fire Gator. And so they do. And in the next scene, we see Taffy, played by Mink Stoll, staging a car accident in Dawn's living room. What is this scene about? So victims of abuse turn typically turn into abusers, right? I think this is supposed to be just like a representation that this this girl has been so abused and traumatized that all she knows now is to play in that manner right she's not playing like house and dolls she's playing you know me and my my friend get into like a serious traffic homicide incident i think there's a few things here i i don't entirely disagree with you but one i know that john waters when he was a child was obsessed with car accidents and would often do this in his parents home stage car accidents <laughs> for fun um <laughs> But I also think that he's mocking society's fascination with violence, just like he is in the rest of the film. The idea that up until a certain point, we are very comfortable glamorizing or obsessing over or, you know, even just driving down the road and staring at car accidents as long as it's at sort of a safe distance as long as it's somewhat imaginary we're we're comfortable with that that level of violence it's david cronenberg touched on similar themes in his movie crash did you ever see that no it's i don't fullheartedly recommend the movie um but it's about people who get in car accidents and then fetishize accidents and can only get excited sexually in car accidents. And they form sort of a little group that stage famous car wrecks and use them for erotic purposes. It's it's touching on the same sort of idea, I think. And yeah, it's it's worth a watch. It's an interesting thing to check out. But maybe I'm reading too much into this. Maybe this is just John Waters giving an anecdote from his childhood and the the car accidents he liked to play with <laughs> i don't for lack of a better word 
no, you might be onto something here. I mean, it's not uncommon for, you know, children to play like, say, cops and robbers or like cowboys and Indians or something. Or I guess that's not culturally sensitive in this time and age. But, you know, similar, you know, games that do involve like violence and death and murder. And so if people or kids can play that, why can't they play, you know, car crash simulator? Yeah. 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 Exactly. You're right. So um, in the next scene, we see Edith Massey, Aunt Ida, uh, trying to match Gator up with a guy that she met. And she, she tells us that she thinks it's really simple that smart equals queer and stupid equals straight. And since Gator is smart, he must be queer, you know, in reality, even if he's not sure about it. But Gator is not interested at all. He says he's going to Detroit to join the auto industry, which devastates Ida. What do you think about this this message that uh, smart equals queer and stupid equals straight? I mean, it just goes back to the first conversation that the aunt Gator had where I'm sure, you know, there are people on this crew that went through this conversation, but you know, on the other side, I think this is just an extension of that. As far as the auto industry, I think that's probably like the straightest career choice they could think of at the time. Yeah, I, I cannot imagine uh, Gator working in the auto industry. We, and, and I'll just point out his, his pronunciation of auto industry is possibly the more, most Baltimore thing I've ever heard. I didn't I didn't understand the accent, but if it's a Baltimore thing, you know. Uh, yeah, it's a Baltimore yeah. accent. I mean, all of these people to some degree or another have a Baltimore accent. They're they're all from Baltimore. But oh, one thing this reminds me of, and I've heard John Waters say things to this effect, is there are certainly queer people who I've met who identify as queer uh, rather than you know, gay or um, bisexual or some other LGBTQ term. And I, as a straight male, like, I can't speak to this. I, I just know what what I've heard and read. But there is a subset of people who identify with queerness and think that it's a mistake for gay people to try to emulate straight culture. And I think that John Waters isn't just trying to promote acceptance of these alternative identities. He's actually deriding straight culture and in a very countercultural way, uh, arguing for a superior alternative lifestyle, albeit in a tongue in cheek way. But I think that John Waters, for example, would see no point in gay marriage. Marriage is like a straight lifestyle choice that gay people don't need to emulate. Right. So the the Dashers arrive to visit Dawn, and we've got glimpses of the inside of her house before, but this is the first time I think we get a good look inside. And I love the interior of this house. There's one whole wall that's sort of painted in abstract colors. And then the rest of the house is in this sort of garish 70s wallpaper. Did did the sets in this movie like leave any impression on you? 
there was a scene later on that <laughs> made the entire apartment look like it was a big the inside of a christmas present is the best way i could put it yeah where there's just like streaming red like reflective paper and plastic and ribbon everywhere yeah I that's that's the set design it's kind of like a a flamboyant james bond villain apartment yeah i mean and and the thing is that none of the the sets look like sets i mean they really look like the inside of someone's house um and somehow that that realism as absurd and sort of over the top as it is adds to the unrealism of the film to me like we're so used to seeing films on professionally constructed and designed sets that when we see a film in a real idiosyncratic home it doesn't seem real like it seems surreal perhaps i mean compare these you know these scenes to anything from dangerous living where you had like these shanty town houses built in like the middle of the woods right desperate living but yeah no, I take, desperate living i take your point for sure so divine is is serving them spaghetti and mrs dasher is not having it she said she wants two chicken breasts and she says we rarely eat any form of noodle and so instead, she wants an extremely large glass of ice water. <laughs> and despite the fact that she doesn't want the spaghetti, Taffy, when she asks for some, Dawn tells her there's not enough. <laughs> there's not enough, yeah. So um, Dawn, and, Dawn and Taffy get in a fight, and Dawn <laughs> knocks Taffy out with a chair, and the Dashers love it. They're photographing all of this and encouraging it. And at this point, I thought that Taffy might be dead, but she's not. She appears later on. Um, but still, this is certainly the most overt demonstration of abuse that we've seen so far. It gets worse. <laughs> it does. So about this time, Aunt Ida shows up and she's mad that Dawn drove Gator away. And so she hurls acid on her face and the dashers love this too and want to photograph it they're insisting that the acid uh, deformity will just make dawn more beautiful <laughs> what did you think of the the acid makeup uh, <laughs> it was pretty good quality considering the rest of the movie's budget right i think it looks pretty good yeah so we're jumping ahead a little bit. We see Dawn in the hospital and her face is wrapped in bandages. Uh, but there's a whole crowd of people who are excited to see the unveiling, including the Dashers. Um, and they're all insisting that these scars are just going to make her more beautiful. And one of the people there is another one of the hairdressers from the salon named Wink. And he says that he's so excited to see it that he has a heart on. And I'm going to play this clip because it's really wonderful. Aim it the other way then, Wink. You know how I detest organs. Beauty has absolutely nothing to do with that word, that thing you have there hanging like an obscene pickle. Spare me your anatomy. <laughs> so that is the reaction of Mrs. Dasher. And I love the line, spare me your anatomy. 
so here we see another example of the Dasher's abhorrence towards sex. But once the bandages are off, we see the scarred face, and it is fairly horrific. Uh, and Don can't wait to get makeup on, not to cover it up, but to accentuate it, right? And she goes home with the Dashers, and this is when we see the set design you were talking about, where the inside of the house is decorated like a Christmas present. And they surprise Dawn with Edith Massey, with Ida, in like a bird cage. I certainly did not expect this development, but I'm not surprised, I suppose. I mean, the entire, as soon as they take Dawn under her wing, or under their wing, the Dashers are goading her the entire time to be more and more depraved. And you know, what's a little kidnapping and uh, deformity on top of all this? Right. And they all they all decide that they're going to cut off Ida's hand, the one that threw the acid. And so we see them chopping it off with an axe. I, I don't know if it was a, a group decision. Like Mr. Dasher just threw it out there like, hey, chop her arm off, chop her hand off. She's <laughs> being like groomed and directed into being this like horror model. Right. And they're they're taking photos the whole the whole time. And I can't remember if it's before or after the hand chopping, but Mrs. Dasher convinces Dawn to mainline liquid eyeliner. It was after the I believe. So apparently in the scene, uh, they had a nurse on standby because they really did inject uh, divine with a needle. I doubt it was filled with liquid eyeliner. <laughs> but do you think that it's supposed to literally be liquid eyeliner or is that like a euphemism for a drug? I think that's the uh, I think that's the bourgeoisie tricking the you know the the poor woman into just kind of doing what they want her to do. Yeah, I mean it certainly has an effect on her. She's like super hyperactive after this. It's clearly supposed to be like heroin or something, right? But, uh, well, I'll make sure maybe not heroin because she's hyperactive, but it's clearly drugs, right? Right. Um, and, and, and it lasted, I mean, it lasted until like the next day. Did it? Yeah, because when, um, when she showed, when Dawn shows up at the Dasher's house the next day for dinner, they offer her more and she says that she's still high from the last dose. Oh, I thought she meant like she was still high from like when she shot up earlier, not necessarily from that instance. Oh, maybe. I mean, maybe. I would just assume they gave her a bunch to take home. I don't yeah. know, maybe not. I mean, you got to kind of control the drip, right? <laughs> right. So in the next scene, Taffy demands to know who her father is. And so Dawn gives her the information and Taffy goes to see him. And so this time we, we see Divine again playing the father and he's drunk and kind of tries to rape Taffy and vomits on her. And so she, she stabs him to death in self-defense or disgust. I, I'm not sure. But what do you think of this scene? Well, with how fast you described it and how nonchalantly we you know, mentioned that there was both an attempted rape, vomiting, and, 
and a murder all in the same scene and we just summarized it in like 10 seconds as a, as a side story is is really a testament to how this film will desensitize you to this sort of thing that's very like, true th- this is only like an hour in you still have like about half an hour left yeah that's a very astute point it is a short scene but there's a couple of things about it i want to mention uh one uh, fun fact, apparently Divine took a drug to induce vomiting so that um, so that <laughs> like he could Epicac vomit for something? real. I, I don't know, but it didn't work. So he had to fake it. But originally, he really wanted to vomit. So I thought that that was interesting. Hmm. Uh, another thing about this scene that I find interesting is a whole bunch of times throughout it, we flash to a mounted boar's head on the wall. What did you think that was about? All men are pigs. I mean, do you think it's that? I guess it's that obvious, but I don't, I didn't really notice this in the rest of the film, this use of like an object or a symbol to further the characterization. Did uh, taxidermy offend hippies in the 70s? Oh, I don't know. Maybe. Maybe. Um, this was the. This was also the scene where I realized Divine played both of these characters. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. What gave it away? The voice. Yeah, that's why I was like, "Oh, it's the same voice." Somehow I didn't notice that like five minutes into the film, but I noticed it now. Yeah. So John Waters has said that Divine really liked playing men, but didn't really have many opportunities to do so. But I think it's a, I mean, in the context of the movie, it's a good performance. He definitely accomplishes what he needs to. It it took me a while to realize that it was the same person. So I think that's a a rousing success. Yeah. So this experience, as well as a conversation with Ida, convinces Taffy that she's going to go and live with the Hare Krishna people. And Dawn is horrified by this. She says that she would have killed her at birth if she'd known that she was going to embarrass her this way. So the next time we see Taffy, she's in the Hare just, Krishna get up. Just imagine running away to join a like Hindu spirituality cult as a form of teenage rebellion. Right. And I I love the I mean, maybe this is just petty of me, but I love the way she she describes it. I'm going to run away and join the Hare Krishna people because they treat me nice. Right, essentially. Um, and then she like spouts out some dogma and clangs the, the finger symbols. Right. So do you think that do you think that this is meant to be an indictment of religion as like taking advantage of people's psychological torment, or is it not that deep? I mean, probably. I mean, this was actually a cult that was big in the 70s that went to court because of that very thing where you would have uh, teenagers run away and join this group horrible things would happen to them and uh, you know you'd have the parents come after them in in civil and criminal court for uh, damages I'm Um, really not I'm really not familiar with that history this is the first time I've ever seen this in like a form of popular media but yeah it's they're still around they're just not that big in America yeah, no, I've met I've met Hari Krishnas and oh. I've, I've seen them um, I've seen them in public places doing uh, like their chanting. 
and I actually find the chants really peaceful. And I have some old records uh, that were like put out privately by Hare Krishna groups, and, and I I find listening to them very meditative and and peaceful. Um, but I'm just not I, I'm not familiar with like the lawsuits or the the accusation that they were like taking advantage of young people. I don't remember the specifics because it's been a long time since I've read about it, but there's probably a very thorough Wikipedia page to comb through if you really, if you're really interested. Yeah, I'll, I'll probably look into it. But anyway, in this, in this case, I, I don't think it's like a major plot point and it's more funny than anything, but I, I certainly think it's, worth pointing out that Taffy only joins the Hare Krishnas because she's not getting food or support or love or attention from anywhere else. So Taffy lets Ida out of her cage and tells her to go straight to the police. And then Taffy runs to where Dawn is about to do this stage show that the Dashers have set up. And Taffy tries to convince Dawn at the last moment to like change her ways. And this is where Dawn strangles her to death in front of the Dashers and some other people. And of course the Dashers are photographing everything. Um, so we finally, we finally see the death of Taffy. I should say that starting from this scene and progressing to like the finale that that's upcoming, they start name dropping a lot of, like crime references from the 70s that I had to look up most of them, but I caught the first one where I think it was Mrs. D yeah, Mrs. D Mrs. Dasher tells Taffy, who is at the time talking back to her mom, like, hey, you know, remember Alice Crimmins, who was essentially the Casey Anthony of the 70s, <laughs> basically saying like, yo, Taffy, look out, you know, there are parents who will kill their children for this stuff. Yeah, so apparently this stage show that Don does was based on a show that Divine did in real life where he would dance around on stage and hurl fish at the audience and admit to committing all kinds of famous crimes. And so it was like a piece of performance art that they just adapted into the movie but yeah all of these crime references from the 70s i a lot of them are lost on me because i just don't know the history that well yeah i understood like two of them and then i had to look up the rest after the scene was done yeah so basically dawn jumps around on trampoline on stage um rolls around in some fish puts them in her mouth and cops to all kinds of ridiculous crimes that she's supposedly committed or involved with. And then she opens fire on the crowd with a gun. So she's she's arrested, um, no surprise there. And we see her in prison with her lesbian lover. Oh, I think I'm we skipping. need to slow we need to slow down just a little bit because yeah. I feel like the main premise for this film, again, I could be like overreading into this. Is, is at the end, the finale of this performance where you have Divine doing these absurd, disgusting things and then like impressive trampolining, right? Like that was some sick trampolining. Yeah, apparently um, apparently Divine took trampoline lessons. Yeah, it shows. That was, some, that was some pretty good trampolining. But the crowd is really into it. 
And when she is saying things like, you know, like I blew Kevin Speck, is that the name from the trailer? It's in it's, the trailer and she it's, says it. It's Richard Speck. Richard Speck. Yeah, right? he was so he like, was a serial killer and rapist. So I did not know who that was and I had to look it up. And like the modern day equivalent would be like if the vine went up and said like she blew Dylan Roof or something, right? So that right. was like pretty like raunchy. <laughs> I mean, this whole movie is, right? But I feel like that's, that's really like the apex of, of this film, like going even just nowhere's off limits. But yeah, as I, soon as she pulls out the gun, you know, the audience is like, yeah, this is great. But then she starts incorporating them into the scene. And suddenly that is that is enough. They they start scattering. Well, so you have she, this audience who is like glorifying and reveling and, and like violence and depravity. But as soon as they are a part of the story, as soon as they're part of the misery, they like completely break down and want to get out. Yeah, I think that's totally you're right that that's important. Although when she first takes out the gun, she asks like, who wants to die for art? And and one guy volunteers. Um, yes. And and he's the first one shot, I guess. But but you are right, I think, that there is a limit to the audience's willingness to entertain violence and depravity and immorality. And it stops once they're endangered. Like it's all well and good to to gawk at sort of the freak um who occupies this world that they are not a part of just so long as they're not endangered by that world first off a centric individual not freak and you know there's a quote that that mrs dasher says uh early on in the film that stuck with me like think of all the little horror stories that go on in other people's lives like i think that is the the defining quote of the entire film yeah, and I, I think that I think that most of the people who made this film would embrace the term freak. Um, so I I don't know if it's offensive in this context, but but you're right. It's the dashers themselves. They were all into it until shit got too real, and then all of a sudden they 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 go to the police. We are law abiding citizens. We would never participate in this. this also, like. So outside the context of the movie, I think cameras are traditionally a way to show a separation from whatever's happening. Like the dashers are willing to experience crime from behind a camera, but they're not actually participating in it. They think that divine is beautiful with her scars and her abnormal behavior, but they certainly aren't scarring themselves or making themselves look strange. I mean, beyond Mr. Dasher's mustache. <laughs> yeah, that was a pretty awful mustache. But it's probably the point, right? Yeah, I mean, it, this is going off topic, I think, but in Pink Flamingo's, they have their hair is dyed like blue and pink. And I heard John Waters explaining that, you know, at the time, you know, now you could have blue or pink hair and it would just be seen as like punk. But then, you know, this predates punk. There, there's, it, it would have been 
completely socially unacceptable to be seen in public with that hair. And so I think that we do lose a little bit of the transgressive nature of the film in modern times. But with that said, in this particular film, the dashers are always separated from the action by their cameras. And um, but but you you pointed out that once Dawn is arrested and she's sent to trial, yeah, the dashers and everybody else like turns against her and says like, oh, no, we were horrified and we would never be involved in anything like this. Right. And it's interesting. The trial scene's kind of interesting because on the one hand, I think we feel sympathetic for Dawn because they are lying about her and putting blame on her that isn't deserved. But she does she is guilty of committing these crimes like her character is an overly aggressive dog starting from like the beginning of the film all the dashers did was give her rabies like she's i don't think they really fundamentally changed who she was which you know kind of it, it seals the theme that society did not fail this woman right like she was a bad apple from the beginning and she was just a worse apple by the end because Everybody around her, or at least the Dasher, no, I guess everybody sort of enabled her. The Dashers like bankrolled and like groomed her. And then she had the audience that, that gave her the attention she so desperately uh, sought and, and desired. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it goes back to what I said earlier on in the episode that John Waters saw the killers in the Manson murders as victims too. Like he thought that what they did was horrific and that the, the families of the deceased were victims, but he also thought that the, the killers were victims of Manson's sway and influence. And I think that's what you're seeing here for such a ridiculous in your face confrontation of a movie. It's pretty nuanced insofar as Dawn is both a criminal and a victim. And this scene, this trial scene, makes her somewhat sympathetic to me. Yeah, that's actually a good point. I, I didn't make that connection uh, until you mentioned it. But so, I think I think a, a different scriptwriter would have made Dawn out to be a more innocent character in the beginning, right? Yeah, I think like that, she, yeah. Yeah. It like it would she would have been like the character from Body Parts where it's innocent teenager running away from home to experience something new. But because... in this case, yeah, she's already off to a bad start and instead of I guess getting the the good social support and help that she needs, maybe some therapy would have been nice. Yeah, you you're right. You got the she is basically taken advantage of and bled worse worse into this forest but see i think that in a way what you just said is normalizing john waters too much it's not that like the difference between a movie like private parts and this is that a, a quote unquote normal movie would not make a character like don davenport the lead because normal filmmakers feel like the audience needs someone to identify with. 
John Waters thinks that the freaks need someone to identify with. And so that goes back to what I was saying about Don being a hero in a way that I don't think this is a story about Don's downfall. I think this is a story about a hero who is striking out against conformity and against straight culture and suburban society and yeah maybe she takes it too far and does some unacceptable things and is like coerced in some ways by the dashers but at the end of the day i think john waters sees her as a sympathetic hero i mean i don't think that john waters would kill anyone but he's spoken proudly about shoplifting for example as a way to like strike out against you know the straight people <laughs> uh I, I have definitely heard him in interviews um, abusing food stamp systems to buy lobster. Right. Yeah. Right. So I, you know, I, I don't think we're supposed to see Dawn as innocent, but I think that we, John Waters did make this so that people could identify with her and not just judge her or look down at her or laugh at her, but actually be in her point of view to some extent. And, you know, I I know people who don't like early John Waters movies, my wife included, and it's partly because they feel like it's all too much, right? There's too much screaming. There's too much fighting. There's too much depravity. There's... There's nothing, there's no moment where you can relax or let your guard down and like experience normal reality. But that's part of what I like about it is that it transports me to this world that otherwise I would have no experience with. And I think John Waters would think that it's partly because of cowardice that I am not, I have not been willing to live my life in a transgressive way. And so I have to watch John Waters movies and, and live out my transgressions that way. Well, perhaps I am also a transgressive coward because I cannot possibly see myself, you know, seeing Dawn as a heroic figure. I can see her as a tragic figure, but that's about as far as I could go. So we haven't quite reached the end of the plot, but I think that this is a perfect place to wrap up. And we've been going for a long time. So why don't you go ahead and give your final thoughts and rating for Female Trouble? There's not much else I can say that we haven't already covered, but I absolutely love this film. Even if it wasn't made for for me, or I'm not exactly understanding all of the messages that john waters wanted to share with this film i absolutely love it that the direction the tone script setting everything is just so consistent and distinctive it's really my only worry is that somehow his other films will not hold up to this one but i hope i'm wrong i also want to add that the absolute professionalism and self-confidence required on behalf of all the actors on this film is absolutely mind-blowing and I think really sells the the performances that were necessary to tell this story. Uh, this is 
easily four stars and the first four stars of the podcast for me. Yeah, I, I agree with all of that. Um, if I have a complaint about this movie, it's that I think it drags a little bit in the second half. I think that the first half is probably my favorite of all of John Waters' work. And then the second half gets a little bit stale for me, but it's a minor complaint. I mean, I think that this is not just a funny, wacky, weird, like cult classic movie. I think this is actually an important work of art that doesn't get the attention that it deserves outside of John Waters fans, right? So John Waters fans are going to love and treasure this film, but there's a reason why the Criterion Collection has put it out, right? It's, it, it, it does have an important place in film history. And so uh, I give this four stars as well. I think even if this is not typically your cup of tea, uh, you still owe it to yourself to experience at least one of John Waters' early films. And I personally think this is the best one that you should, you should experience. Easy so, recommend, but don't watch with your parents. Yeah, for sure. Although, all right, this, so this is a funny aside, but I used to own the Continental big box VHS release of this that I bought at a video store. And I mistakenly sold it. I regret that decision. Uh, so if anyone out there has one that they, they want to sell me, uh, I will happily pay you for it. But uh, one day while I was on vacation or something, my mom and her boyfriend at the time were looking through my movies to find something to watch. And they picked this tape. And when I got home from vacation, my mom was like, so we watched this really weird movie out of your collection. And they, they weren't that taken aback by it. They kind of watched it as if it was a normal horror movie. I don't know. It was a very, it was very odd, but my, <laughs> my mom has seen this movie and um, took it in stride apparently. Hmm. So let's end it there. We'll be back next week and hopefully uh, we will be doing forbidden zone. Um, so if you have not checked that out yet, check it out and join us here uh, next week. You can find everything we do uh, at video.store.nightmares on Instagram. Please, uh, you should be able to find us on anywhere you find your podcast. Rate, review, subscribe. If you want to leave us a mean review because you hate what you heard, give us five stars anyway and tell us what you hated. We'll only be getting better from here on out. So I hope that you continue to come back and, and tell your friends. All right, for this week, goodbye.